Hi. That was really good. Great. Great to be with you. Hey, my name is Ken, and welcome to Grace. And uh, I'm uh, on the elders team uh, with Einer and Mark and John, and we're really excited to be able to serve you uh, in what God is doing here at Grace. Very, very excited about that. So we're in a series called Eight Days That Changed the World. Can you read that with me off the screen? You ready? Eight Days That Changed the World. And you remember what we're looking at? We're looking at those eight days that start with Palm Sunday and end with Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday. And there are, if you look in Scripture, you can follow and track what's going on during those eight days. It's really kind of cool. So we looked at Palm Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Good Friday, Saturday, and then Easter Sunday. We're taking one Sunday and looking at each of those days. And so far, we've looked at Sunday, Palm Sunday, and Monday, and today we're going to look at Tuesday. You remember Palm Sunday, right? Jesus throws his own parade. He gets a donkey together, a colt of a donkey, and he goes down into Jerusalem. And as John so well pointed out, there may be hundreds of thousands of people who would have been cheering him on, celebrating him, dancing with joy. They saw this as maybe an indication that the king was about to come, and they were thrilled with it. Jesus starts out that day really filled with joy, really filled with gladness, and then he's filled with sadness because on part of the way in the road, on the road into the city, he starts to cry when he realizes these people don't fully understand who I am, and in a few days, they're not, they're not going to be celebrating me at all. The same crowd that was cheering him will be jeering him. The crowd that calls him king will cry, crucify, right? Then we come to Monday, and we looked at Monday last week, and Monday was a day in which Jesus and his disciples, they'd left Jerusalem after Palm Sunday, gone to Bethany, just a little village not far away. They're on their way back into Jerusalem, and when they do that, there is a tree that Jesus sees, a fig tree, and he curses it when he comes up to it, which is really strange and weird. Why would Jesus curse something? I mean, we like the walk on the water stuff and the multiply the fish and all that, but this is really strange. And then he goes into town and starts in the court, temple courtroom, courtyard, he starts flipping over tables and driving things, uh, animals out and so on and so forth. And we're kind of caught with what is going on here. And as we look back at the fig tree account and what's going on in the temple compound with Jesus, we realize that he has an, abs- an anger toward hypocrisy. He's, glad, he's, he's, he's sad on Sunday, but he's mad on Monday at what they're doing with worship and celebration and so on. And if you want to unpack that a little bit more, you can go online and, and listen or watch the teaching from last week. Today, we come to Tuesday. I need to tell you this about Tuesday. Tuesday is a busy, busy, busy day in Jesus' life. It starts at chapter 11 and verse 20 and goes all the way through to the end of chapter 13, just on that day. It's an incredibly busy day for him. In fact, why don't I just walk you through really quickly what happens if you've got a Bible and you want to go to Revelation, Mark chapter 11, you can go there if you want, but Mark chapter 11, and starting at verse 20, um, here's what happens on Tuesday morning. Again, what's taken place is that the disciples have left Jerusalem and they've gone back to Bethany. And they're going to come back from Bethany into the city of Jerusalem where Jesus is going to encounter a lot of people. In verse 20, as they're walking along, the disciples see this withered fig tree. And they're going, whoa, look at that. The tree's completely dead now. Jesus, you cursed it. Look what happened. And Jesus says to them, hey, if you have faith in God, you can do some amazing things. If you pray, believing, God can really work through your prayers. You go down to verse 27. And... um, what takes place there is that the religious leaders attack Jesus when he gets into, you notice it says they arrive at Jerusalem, 
And Jesus is walking around, and they confront Jesus, and they say, what, by what authority do you have the right to say and do what you say and do? Who gives you that kind of authority? And Jesus responds, as he often does, by asking them a question. And the question he asks them is this, is this question, well, who gave John the Baptist his authority? Do you think it was from God, or do you think it was of himself? And he's caught them, because they don't want to say it wasn't from God, um, because the people will get mad, and they don't want to say it was from God, because then they should have followed him. So they say, uh, we don't know. And Jesus goes, yeah, and I'm not going to tell you what my, where my authority comes from either. That's what he does. Chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus tells a story. It's a story of a rich landowner who has vineyards and everything, and he rents his property out to people to work for him. When he sends his servants to gather information about what they've done, they kick the servants out. So the owner decides to send his son. When he sends his son to find out what's going on, they kill his son. And Jesus teaches them essentially that that's who he is from God as the son. And ultimately, of course, they will kill him. You come to verse 13, and Jesus tells this interesting, has this, they're trying to trap Jesus now on Tuesday. So they come to him and they talk to him, okay, are we supposed to pay taxes? And Jesus says, give me a coin. Remember the account? And he looks at the coin and he says, whose picture's on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. And he says, well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. You go to verse 18, and the Sadducees come at Jesus and they have this little story that they tell him. What if, what if a man marries one woman and then marries an, a, a, another woman and, or, or the woman marries another man? And I can't remember where, how it goes. But anyways, there's marriage going on, a lot of marriage. And they're saying to him, well, what happens when they get to heaven? Whose wife or whose husband will they be? And Jesus says, well, you guys don't have a clue. There is no marriage in heaven. Answer given. They've been trying to trap him. Notice verse 28. He, here's one of the teachers of the law who deliberately comes to Jesus with um, a, an, an open question, and the question is this. We got like 630 commandments. Like, which is the ones we should obey? I can't keep all 630. And Jesus says, the greatest commandments are, are what? You know what they are, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. So love God, love people. That's what you need to do. That's what Jesus tells him. And then um, he does some teaching from the Old Testament in, from the writings of David. And then finally in verse 40, 41, if you come down in chapter 12, Jesus um, sits down and he watches a widow put two copper coins in an offering box. And he points out how sacrificial and honoring her act of giving was. That's part of what happens on Tuesday. So Jesus, as you can see, very, very busy. Then we come to chapter 13. Chapter 13 is a chapter whose content is repeated in the book of Matthew in chapter 24 and 25, and in Luke in chapter 21. So what happens in Mark chapter 13 is very, very important. It's very important. And essentially, Mark chapter 13 is a conversation at the end of the day with some of his disciples. And it's built around two questions that the disciples ask in response to a prediction, a prophecy that Jesus gives. If you go to Mark chapter 13, here's what we read in verses 1 and 2. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings... Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. 
everyone will be thrown down. The temple was absolutely magnificent to look at. Now, now to understand the temple, you have to go back 900 years to a king by the name of Solomon. Solomon, David, King David's son, after David had gathered together all the materials, was kind of commissioned by his father to build the temple. And he built this magnificent structure. It was just phenomenal what he built. Again, about 900 years before the time of this event right here. It was, uh, you know, they'd been dragging the tabernacle around, which was this tent that they had in Exodus. They'd been dragging it around for hundreds of years. This was the kind of God's place of worship. I would imagine it would have been patched up in places and so on. And David said, no, 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 we can't let our God have that kind of a place of, of, of worship. And so he wanted to build this. And eventually his son Solomon does do that for him. In 586 BC, 586 before this, years before this time, a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came down to Jerusalem and brought his war machine against the city and absolutely pulverized it, destroyed everything, destroyed the temple. It was nothing but rubble. And Solomon's temple was one of the wonders of the world. People would come to travel and look at it. It was nothing but garbage when they got done with this. And Nebuchadnezzar took people back to Babylon. That's where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken. Daniel was taken, these young men, to train them up to become Babylonians. It was a shambled mess. A number of decades later, a man by the name of Zerubbabel came back to try and rebuild the temple, and he did his best to do that, but it wasn't anywhere near as good as Solomon's. So we travel now hundreds of years now until the time of Jesus, and there is a king by the name of Herod that the Romans put in charge of, of Israel, and Herod is a great builder. Any of you been to Israel? Have any of you been to Israel in the room? Okay, if you've been to Israel, one of the things you're going to notice is you can see a lot of things that Herod built, like they're all over the place, and it's still today. He was an incredible builder, and one of the things he wanted to do was to build the temple again, restore it to something of its Solomonic glory, and so he invests a whole bunch of time and energy in building it. In fact, it took him 62 years to build it back to what he wanted it to be. You can get a look of a model here that's on the screen. You can see the massive size of the temple compound. In fact, it covered about a sixth of the city of Jerusalem. It was immense. 20 years before Jesus was born, Solomon or King Herod started building this. He brought in massive stones, 40 feet long, 16 feet high, and he wanted to expand the courtyard. In order to do that, because it was located on a hill, he needed to build a wall from the bottom of the Kidron Valley all the way up. 200-foot wall he built, expanded the whole courtyard area to about 600,000 square feet. It was incredible. And to look at this city, in, in, it was, was amazing. The temple, parts of it had roofs that were covered in gold, it had these white marble walls, and, and, and so on. All the stonework was magnificent. And if you were looking down in Jerusalem, you saw this thing, you would be blown away. The disciples, okay, are from Galilee, they're a bunch of hicks from up north. And uh, when they come down and they look at this incredible temple, they've seen it before, but they're just so blown away by how amazing and wonderful it is that they talk to Jesus about it. And Jesus makes this incredible statement around what is going to happen to the temple. Look what we read in Mark chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, 
when will these things happen? That is, when will the city be destroyed? When will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? I think that this must have just really rocked the disciples when Jesus said to them, the whole temple is going to be absolutely destroyed. And I think in their minds, they would have gone back to 586 BC and thought about what Nebuchadnezzar had done and how much harm and damage and pain had been inflicted on the nation of Israel when he attacked Jerusalem and destroyed Solomon's temple. And now this temple is going to be turned into rubble. And you can imagine the pain that they're experiencing because they recognize at that moment that it's not just the building that's going to be harmed, it's going to be us. It's going to be our people. It's going to be my families. And you can imagine the weight that they're now feeling at this particular moment. It's got to be absolutely huge. It's like a gut punch. You ever had one of those with a circumstance in your life where maybe you've gotten some news and it's been hurtful news, news that has just dropped, knocked the wind right out of you? Maybe it's been cancer or maybe it's been a loss of a job or maybe it's been a broken relationship or maybe it's been a struggle that a child or friend has had. And when that happens, sometimes the hope, there's this thing called hope that all of us have inside of us, and it feels like somebody just pulled it far away. You weren't even really thinking about hope, but now that this disaster has happened, now that this struggle has taken place, you're going, you just feel like you don't have any hope. There's interesting stories about what happens to human beings when hope is gone, when hope disappears. Um, whether that be as they struggle in, to, for, to, to live or whether that be in circumstances that are around them, that hope is so incredibly important. And yet when you take it away, there is this devastating feeling that comes, an emptiness, a weight that just comes down heavy upon you. The disciples wanted to know, when is this going to happen? When is it going to happen? And can you tell us, can you tell us all about that, Jesus? And, and, and I think it's a great question to ask Jesus. Now, often when we think about Jesus, we'll think of him as being our savior and our king, but rarely do we think about him as a prophet, right? And yet he is a prophet. He predicts, does it over and over again in scripture. We read the story sometimes and don't even realize, oh, that's a prophetic announcement that Jesus just made. And the Bible contains all kinds of prophecy. You guys realize that, right? It's, it's very unique that way in terms of a religious writing that this one contains a lot of prophecy. Go ahead and look at other religious books and check them out for prophecy and you'll find how different and unique the Bible is in terms of that one situation, that circumstance around prophecy. And prophecy is often a place of hope for us, isn't it? It can be a place that's weighty as well, as we'll see in a moment, but when you understand some of the prophecies that are given in Scripture, they can bring us hope in the middle of heavy, heavy times. So let's talk about that. Let me just say a couple of things. Let me just kind of say a couple of things before we dive into chapter 13. There are some understandings of teaching in Scripture that I hold really tightly because I believe they're absolutely true and unshakable, okay? I think the Bible repeats them over and over again, so I hang on to those really tightly in my right hand. But there are some teachings in the Bible that I'm not completely sure. There's people who debate what they are. There's people who have different positions on them. And so I try to hold my position with an open hand, maybe learning from others as time goes on and so on and so forth. Do you understand what I mean? So for example, um, the fact that Jesus is going to come back again, I hold that in very tightly in my hand. The fact that Jesus died on the cross, 
rose from the dead, I hold that really tightly in my hand. It's an unshakable thing that I hang on to. But the process of the future in terms of prophecy is concerned. There are a bunch of different positions around that that people are trying to understand. And while I have a position, and I think it's the right position, the truth of the matter is that I am open to the options that others may have. And when they get to heaven, they'll find out I was right. But until then, I want to hold it more openly. Do you understand what I'm saying? When I'm talking about those different steps, what's going to happen next, what's going to happen next? I hold it like this, but I will teach it, but the other stuff I hold really tightly. And that's an important thing to understand. And it's, it happens in a whole bunch of areas theologically. If you are smart about understanding Scripture and recognizing what it teaches, there are some things you're going to hold really tightly and some things you're going to be more open to. I think that's just the natural flow of things. Some prophecies in the Bible are easy to understand. You read them, they're simple. You think, I know what that means. I know what's going to happen to fulfill it. For example, when Jesus says the temple's going to be destroyed, not one stone will be left on another, you go, I get that. That's pretty simple. I understand what the prophecy's about. I'm going to wait to see if it happens. Other prophecies are more nuanced and sometimes symbolic. They're difficult. When you read them, you don't even, maybe not, may not even know they are a prophecy. So, for example, in Hosea chapter 1 and verse 11, it talks about, it says it, and I quote, as my son who comes out of Egypt. But in the context, he's talking about Israel. And so you don't realize that he's talking about Jesus until you get to the New Testament. And when you go to the New Testament, you realize that the writers of the New Testament say, this is a prediction about Jesus, that he would come out of Egypt. And we remember when he was born in Bethlehem, they had to escape as refugees, the family into Egypt. He comes out of there. So it, that's a nuanced or a more subtle prophecy that happens that way. The third um, kind of prophecy is what we call apocalyptic prophecy. Isn't that a big word? Can you say that one with me? You ready? Apocalyptic. You know what apocalyptic is? Apocalyptic is a certain kind of writing in Scripture that is very image-driven, very dramatic, very wild. The book of Revelation, Ezekiel, portions in Ezekiel, portions in Daniel, and a section in Mark chapter 13 from Jesus is all this apocalyptic writings. You have dragons and fire and stars falling and stuff like that. I like to think of it as a, a superhero comic book on steroids. That's kind of what takes place. There's these images that you hear and you feel and you sense as you look at the writings. Now, it's a little trickier to figure out what are the apocalyptic prophetic utterances all about. And sometimes I think that we're guilty of, of digging too deeply into them. And I know that there's some Bible teachers who do that, and I love them. I think they're great. But I think that sometimes we can go too far into those. And I, I think the lessons are, well, a little more um, nuanced than what we might want to make them to be. So there's these different kinds of prof prophetic utterances, you know, the simple ones that we can understand very easily, the ones that we're going, I'm not sure that is a prophecy, but oh, the New Testament says it is, so it must be. And then it's apocalyptic imagery of the future and what's going to happen. And again, Jesus is going to use that in a little bit here in Mark chapter 13. The third way to think about prophecies is to realize that some prophecies are fulfilled, some prophecies are unfulfilled, and some prophecies are double fulfillment prophecies. Now, I, I want to say this, this is really, I know you might be thinking, what is going on here, Ken? But this is really important for our time this morning. Okay, you ready? You hanging in there? I know, it's Sunday morning, you're not used to this. Okay, put your seatbelts on, boys and girls. We're going for a ride. Here's what's going to happen, okay? So the first thing we've got are fulfilled prophecies. Now, here's what's really cool about the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Who's the person who wrote most of those, pretty much all of it? Would be 
Moses, right? He lived 1,500 years before Jesus. The last book in the Bible is written by the Apostle John in 90 years, in the year AD 90. We've got 1,600 years between the writings of the first books and the writing of the last book, right? 1,600 years of, 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 of history. Again, that's so unlike any other religious writing, right? But here's the thing. Many of the prophecies that are written in the text of Scripture come true before the end of the book. So we can look back and see, you know, before Jesus' birth, the prophet writes, so he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And, and it's a pretty clear prophecy, by the way, absolutely clear. It's not a nuanced one. And you go, oh, he's born in Bethlehem. And you start to realize that we've got fulfilled prophecies that are happening in the text of Scripture. We even have fulfilled prophecies that are happening outside the boundaries of the text of Scripture, and one of them is the destruction of the temple, okay, because Jesus predicted that. So there are fulfilled prophecies, which are great, because if you ever have some struggles about Scripture, look at the prophecies and how they've all been fulfilled, that God was able to keep his word during all that time. And that builds up our faith, right? And our hope in the other predictions or comments or teachings that Jesus gives. Now, there are also unfulfilled prophecies, right? That is, predictions that are made in Scripture, very clear predictions that haven't come true yet. They haven't happened yet. We're sitting between the, the prophecy being made and the real, realization of that prophecy. We're in the middle somewhere. For example, the prophecy that Jesus is going to return. That hasn't happened yet. But one day he will, and we can live in the middle of that spot right now. The third kind of prophecy is called double fulfillment prophecies. Essentially, it's this. You get two prophecies for the price of one. It's a great deal. Now, here, here's, this is a really important one to understand. Um, the prophecy itself might appear to be one prophecy, but there's actually two, at least two parts to it. So Carol and I were out in British Columbia this May and June, and one of the things we did is we drove around the Rocky Mountains. And sometimes as you're driving along and you look at the Rocky Mountains, you look at a mountain and you'll think, wow, that's a big, huge mountain. And the closer you get to it, you start to realize, oh no, it's actually two mountains. I'm seeing one mountain, but as I drive up to that, I realize, oh, the rest, there's another mountain down there. And I get closer to that mountain, and there may even be quite a distance between the first and the second. From my perspective, it looks like one mountain, but really it's two. And sometimes there can be quite a distance between that first mountain and the second mountain. And when we talk about double fulfillment prophecy, we're saying that sometimes the prophecy which is given is two or more prophecies wrapped up into what sounds like one. But as you move through history, you realize, oh no, that's one mountain, then there's another mountain, and between the mountains, there could be hundreds or thousands of years. You say, illustrate it, Ken. Glad you asked. So there's a time when Jesus goes to the synagogue, right? And he opens up the scriptures, and he starts reading from the prophet Jeremiah, and he says to the people that one is going to come who's going to free the captive and heal the blind, and on and on he goes, and then he rolls up the scroll and he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your ears. He stops reading the full prophetic utterance of Jeremiah. He stops very deliberately. Why? Because it's a double fulfillment prophecy. The part that he doesn't read goes like basically this, and the day of the vengeance of our God, okay? But what, does it, what is he doing here? What is he saying? He's saying the first part of the prophecy I'm here to fulfill the time when God's vengeance will come, when judgment will come, when he will make everything right and beautiful and whole again, I'm not here for that. That's coming down the road. But if you read the prophecy, 
yourself, you might not realize that actually it's a double prophecy. Part now, part later. That was my introduction. <laughs> now we're going to start the sermon, okay? <laughs> Let's go back to the text. Here's where we are in Mark chapter 13, verse 3 and 4. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, remember this, I read it already, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign that they were all, all about to be fulfilled? In other words, they're saying, when is this going to happen? And is there any warning? Can you tell us about the warning so we can get out of Dodge? Okay, that's basically what they're saying at this particular point. Now, I want to walk through the book not the book, the chapter, 13th chapter. But there's a lot of verses there, and so I'm going to just skip through. Is that okay? Good, thank you. Um, because um, if we went through every verse, we'd be here till supper time. And um, I'd say it's important to, for us not to, to do that today. Mark chapter 13. Let me just say to you too that Jesus is going to utter a number of prophecies in chapter 13 of Mark. I mentioned already that Mark, Matthew records it in 24 and 25, Luke in chapter 21. It's called the Olivet Discourse. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives looking down at the city, and he makes this great prediction about the future. Some people look at what he's saying, and they say it has already been fulfilled. This is fulfilled prophecy. Everything that Jesus told us has already happened. Okay, and I'll explain that in a little bit. Other people look at Mark 13, and they go, no, it's not about the past at all. It's unfulfilled prophecy. And then there's some people, some wonderful, nice people, who believe it's double fulfillment prophecy, and I just happen to be part of that group, okay? So that's where I'm at on this. And you, again, you can, you can wrestle through this, and I, I believe me, it's, it's, um, it's not as simple as I'm making it out to be. But let's, let's dive into them, dive into the passage, okay? So they're asking the question, what's going to happen? When's it going to be? Their hearts are heavy. They're feeling overwhelmed. Here's what we read. Jesus said to them in verse 5, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. I, this is an interesting prophecy, isn't it, in and of itself? Here's this man who lives on the far-flung corner of the Roman Empire, never wrote a book, never led an army, you know, didn't hardly travel very far, really, ultimately. And he's saying, in years to come, people are going to say, and we don't, I don't exactly know how to understand this. He says, I am he. Whether that means they're going to say, yeah, Jesus is the one who was to come, or whether they're saying, no, I'm the one who was to come. Either case, I think that's happened historically. But the idea that this man who lived way over there is now telling us that this is going to happen, and we see it over and over again. It's pretty amazing, really, isn't it? This is a prophecy that sometimes we may have taken for granted. But Jesus is saying, people are going to imitate me, claim they're me, walk around saying they're me, and I need to tell you, they aren't, okay? They aren't. Don't be deceived. It's going to happen, and people will be deceived, and we can talk about illustration after illustration of people who died as a result of that. He goes on, and I want to jump down to verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. He's saying to us, I'm going to tell you guys, it's going to be like this. There's going to be famines and war. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be all kinds of trouble. That's going to be normal, okay? That's the norm. It's going to happen. 
And I think it's important for us to understand that. You know, a lot of times we'll see, oh, this is happening and that's happening. And sometimes I think we get a little carried away. Jesus is saying, no, this is normal. This is what you can expect to happen. And then he gets rather intriguing here. In verse 14, here's what we read. When you see, look at this phrase, the abomination that causes desolation. I'd get us all to read that together, but I had to practice a lot to make it sound right. The abomination that causes desolation. When you see this, oh, the guys are perking their ears up now. Okay, there's a sign. What's the sign? When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days. Now, this passage in particular is one that some people believe has already been fulfilled and one that some people believe has yet to be fulfilled. I think it has been fulfilled. The abomination that causes desolation is a quote from the book of Daniel. And basically, it's about an event that will be extremely sacrilegious, an event that will assault the focus point or the home point of your worship center. Someone who will cause destruction. In 70 AD, a Roman general by the name of Titus brought his army up against Jerusalem and set their battering rams against it. I was reading yesterday about the prophet, or the, the, the man, Josephus, and he's a historian who lived during this time, and he writes about how awful the situation was in Jerusalem. The interesting thing is he also writes that many of the Christians, when they saw this about to happen, escaped into the hills. They actually did what Jesus had said, and some people were angry that they had left. It was a very much a bloody mess. Bodies piled high on the streets. It lasted for a long time. And when the Romans finally went into the city, they began to, they, the, 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 the temple had started on fire and um, the, the fire heated up and there was you know, chaos that took place. The buildings began to collapse. They ended up starting more fires because they just got kind of wired that way. And they brought their big scepters in with the eagle on the top and they would have worship services all around it. And it became very, very destructive at that particular point. Because of the um, fires, much of the gold that was on the buildings ran down in between the, the rocks and the stones that were there. And so the soldiers literally pried the stones apart so that they could get the gold in, in concert with Jesus' teaching. Historians tell us that a million Jews died during that assault inside the city, a million. That 97,000 of them were taken as slaves. It was a horrific experience in 70 AD. And there's all kinds of stories around that that we could talk through. Horrific time took place. Then he writes this, and this is that little apocalyptic thing that Jesus does. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, here's why I see this as a double fulfillment. I believe that AD 70 is what takes place with the abomination of desolation in, in Jerusalem, and then there's a gap, and Jesus is ultimately going to come again, and he, he speaks about it in apocalyptic terms with the sun falling and stars and all that sort of thing, and then he says, I'm going to come. Some people believe that that it also, there are also a time when this happens again just before Jesus returns. I'm not I'm persuaded of that at this particular point, but again, I'm holding that in an open hand. 
Then Jesus goes on. You notice that he's going to come. He'll send his angels, and everything's going to be right. He's going to make it all healthy and right. You'll notice this. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. How do you think the disciples are feeling? How are you feeling? Imagine you're sitting with Jesus. What are you feeling? I think there's two things that they're feeling at this particular point. One is heavy-heartedness about the destruction and the terror and the awfulness of what's going to take place. On the other hand, their hearts are filled with hope because they know that Jesus is going to come back and make it all right. Heavy-heartedness, hope. Heavy-heartedness, hope. You've been there? You had heavy-heartedness? You get the news that you don't want to hear, a relationship is fractured, things are really tough, you can't seem to make ends meet, it's really difficult, and you feel heavy-hearted. Do you remember to have hope? Do you remember to have hope? Sometimes when we go through these heavy-hearted times, do you find yourself saying, God, why are you letting this happen? Why is this going through? Why, why don't you stop it? Because for many of us, we believe that God is our shepherd and he's a be, our, be our protector, right? He should be the one taking care of us. And yet we find sometimes when things go south that he doesn't seem to be taking care of us. Why does it have to happen this way? And we wonder where our protector is. Protection is important to us, right? Don't you believe that God should be your protector, your shepherd? How can we go through difficult times then? Protection's a big deal in our culture too, isn't it? Have you noticed that? Um, I noticed how parents protect their children differently than my parents protected me. I don't know what that means. You can think about that yourselves. So this last week, um, our one daughter and her husband were away on a cruise, and Carol and I were taking care of their three children. Actually, Carol did most of it. I was just there to be the muscle. <laughs> and um, one of my responsibilities was to drive our kindergarten grandchild to school and, and pick her up after school. And... Um, so I, she's in an inner city school, and I, 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 I drove her to the school, and I picked, walked with her around the back of the building, a massive school building, three stories high, huge, huge building. I walk around the back of the building, and there's a couple of hundred parents there who've also brought their children to school that day. And I don't think my parents even knew where my school was. I mean, <laughs> I don't think that ever happened. And, and, and yet here we are. These parents are protecting their children, and that's their job. They're supposed to do that. But I wonder if somehow, you know, maybe, I get it, I get it, I get it, and there's no simple answer. I mean, you think about playgrounds today, right? And you think about what we do with our playgrounds for our children to play on them, and we are overprotect, I think, well, okay, I'll be careful here, but we do everything so our children won't get hurt. No, that doesn't mean code, change it. We had to do that with our playground outside. Well, years ago, this is what playgrounds looked like, I mean. <laughs> and some of the kids survived. I mean, you know, there's, there's always more on the way, so what's the deal here, right? And, and, and so we kind of look at that and we go, okay, okay, um, and protection. I've just been having a little fun with you. Protection, God, take care of me. Why are you not taking care of me the way that I would like you to? God does protect us, though. I've lost you. Some of you are, I think I know who that is up there. <laughs> um, God does protect us. In fact, there's probably a lot more that he does that we don't even realize to protect us. And let's be open here. What he does to protect us now is temporary, right? It's all temporary because one day he's ultimately going to be with us. And wow, that's going to be so incredibly 
amazing. One hand, our hearts are heavy. We know that life is tough, and we experience it, and the disciples felt it. On the other hand, you can have and grip it tightly a hope-filled heart. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he writes to a group of people whose loved ones have died, and, and they're, they're wondering where they are, what's going on. And he writes this interesting verse. He says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. So that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. Two negatives make a positive. What's he saying here? Grieve with hope. Grieve with hope. He understands. I love when Jesus shows up at Lazarus' funeral and his closest friends and Mary and Martha come out to him and share their heart, the heaviness of their heart. And in that account, Jesus weeps. He cries. Heavy heart. And the wild thing is, in 15 minutes, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Right? Why are you crying? I mean, couldn't you just say, hey, guys, time out. Come on, watch this. Boom, out comes Lazarus. Why does he weep? Because he understands heavy-heartedness. He feels the reality of that loss, and he won't abandon his relationship with us as humans even for 15 minutes. Heavy hearts, hope. I love what the Bible says. It says that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have, what's the word? Hope. Hope. Not a hope so floor-leaf clover thing, but hope. Deep-rooted hope. Confidence. Assurance. That's what it is. That our God is large and in charge. That our God is in control. That Jesus is going to come back, and one, thing, one day everything is going to be right. Everything is going to be the way it needs to be. When I am struggling, I look to the hope in my closed hand. I look to the hope in my closed hand. And I remember that Jesus is alive. He is my hope. Because true hope is stronger than any circumstance we may face. We just got to grab hold of it, look at it, and believe it, and know that God is the one who is the God of hope that we can trust and rest in, no matter our circumstance. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time today, and I thank you for the opportunity to be reminded that you are the one who is large and in charge, that Jesus is our hope. And for some who are here this morning who are feeling the weight of that heavy-heartedness, I pray, Lord, that your hand would be upon them, that the Spirit of God would come along and, and, and nourish them and encourage them and strengthen them, that they might know that they have a hope that is absolutely unchangeable, for sure, and that you can rest in that. Thank you for being that kind of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.